with insights and analysis of today's rapidly shifting world. Welcome to the Jewish Patriot Show with Talk Radio's premier Jewish activist, Cindy Gross, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. And now, your Jewish Patriot, Cindy Gross. Hello and welcome to the Jewish Patriot. I am your host, Cindy Gross, today's premier Jewish woman activist. And as your premier Jewish woman activist, I am first wishing our Jewish community of followers around the world a Shana Tova, a happy and healthy new year. And for my non-Jewish listeners, thank you for tuning in and joining us. And I hope you are inspired by some of the customs and laws that we have in our new year to work with us together for peace, health, wealth, happiness, friendships, and love around the world. However, I'm going to start in my opening corner, my pearls of wisdom, because I am Zisel Pearl, sweet pearl. And it's not the season of a happy and healthy new year for many Jews around the world and for non-Jews as well. And I'll tell you why. Many people ask me why Jews dip apples in honey and eat round challahs at this time of year. And it's all for a sweet new year with hope and prayers for happiness and health and living through another year with family and friends in jobs we like, and maybe not always like, enjoying the freedoms that we are able to have as Jews and non-Jews around the world, being able to pray the way we want, go where we want, educate ourselves the way we want. But this year is different. This year, there is an alarming arise in anti-Semitism not seen since the days of pre-Holocaust Europe of the early 1930s, late 1920s. And it's scary. In places like New York, in places like California, in places in France, and even in Israel, there are Jews actually asking, is it safe to walk to temple or shul? Can I wear a yarmulke in public or a Jewish star or a chai, which means life? Will I be able to eat safely in a sukkah, which we will be celebrating in a couple of weeks, those tents that you see on driveways and in streets and in uh, large uh, parking lots of temples and community centers? Will we be able to dance in the streets with our Torahs during Simcha Torah? People are scared. They fear what they see in the news every day of young people going to schools or yeshivas or men and women walking on the streets being attacked simply because they are wearing garments that make them stand out as Jews. It's frightening. Why is this happening? Tonight, we're going to talk about this with two very important worldwide leaders recognized for their work in the Trump administration but also as Orthodox Jews like myself. This show is not limited to a discussion among Jews or Republicans. 
if we are to end hate, we are to end all hate together, Jew and non-Jew, black or white or Asian or Hispanic, wherever you live, whatever your financial background, suburb or urban, farmland or in a city, mountainous or desert. We are on this earth together and we better get along. Here are some thoughts I recently shared in the Times of Israel in an op-ed I wrote about one of the reasons why there could be a rise in anti-Semitism. Now, while I talk about this as anti-Semitism and some of the issues within my own Jewish community, for my non-Jewish supporters, I hear the same thing going on in the Catholic community and the Protestant community and the Muslim community. It doesn't matter. So here are my tips of what I see happening. Is social media helping or harming anti-Semitism? You know, it's like today with all the streaming lines, you say to yourselves, there's so much to watch and yet nothing to really like. And you decide to do something else. It's the same thing with social media. There is so much social media out there. Who are the influences that really make a difference? And who are the people that think they are important? There have been many situations just in the past week that made me question, are we hurting ourselves or helping ourselves by using social media? I'm not going to go into every detail about what was discussed through social media this week that I had questions about because it doesn't all relate to all of us. But the overall consensus was, are we spending our time, our efforts the right way? Are we sending across a message that brings people together or alienates people? Are we representing our religion the best way? I can't tell you how many times I get phone calls from people. They want to come on the show. They want to work with me on political campaigns. Can I get them jobs? And they say to me, they're very important. They have a following on Facebook. Let me tell you something. Millions of people around the world have followers on Facebook. Many people have multiple accounts and fake accounts to try to get themselves attention on Facebook. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever social media outlet you like, let me tell you a little secret. Nothing relates better of sending out a message in business or in personal relationships like a real inter-relationship with handshakes, with conversations, with face-to-face meetings. Ask anybody who's looking for a match in a romance or a job interview. And there are many people who use these sites for entertainment purposes. They sit on it all day. We don't care if they go to the bathroom and we don't care if their shoelace is untied. And that's what we're seeing too much of. I'm going to give you one example that really upset me this week. Somebody sent a meme of a joke about King Charles III dressed like his mother 
and being a shy leader. And with a joke on it, it was during the first week of her death. And I said to the person, an Orthodox Jew, would you be sharing this kind of meme from someone in your synagogue who's sitting Shiva? So why are you wasting your time sharing this, laughing at it, and making yourself look foolish? And you know what? That person said to me, I think you're right. We can use social media wisely to end anti-Semitism, but we are not because we are not using the tool the right way. For our new year, let us make the pledge, the resolution to be stronger as a voice on social media in a positive way and to do it together with our Jewish and non-Jewish communities because hate is hate. It is anti-Semitism. It is anti-Asian anti-LGBTQ, whatever you feel you are a part of, make sure that you are not part of the problem of sharing hate, but make sure you are part of solution to ending it. We'll be back shortly with our very special guest and our discussions about anti-Semitism and America today during this very special holiday time for the Jewish people. Thank you. In the latest spy thriller from PenCraft first place award-winning novelist, Jeffrey S. Stevens, comes his best character yet, CIA operative Nick Reagan in The Handler. The Handler is the new heart-pounding, dizzying global conspiracy novel that follows the adventure of two CIA operatives from New York to Pakistan, Harris, Las Vegas, and ultimately, America's heartland, as they race to prevent a series of terrorist attacks. Here's what's being said about The Handler. Think Jason Bourne for The New Millennium. Ryan Steck, editor-in-chief, The Real Book Spot. Pulsing with reality, The Handler takes you to the precipice with thrills and terror at every hairpin turn. Best-selling author, Chris Beakey. A taut terrorism thriller that mesmerizes with a dizzying global conspiracy and believable stakes. BestThrillers.com Available now on Amazon.com and wherever you get your favorite books. Get your copy and put yourself right in the middle of the CIA's toughest mission yet. My award-winning novelist, Jeffrey S. Stevens. Welcome to this very special episode of the Jewess Patriot. I am your host, Cindy Gross. Tonight's topic is a very important topic for me, for my guests, and for many of you, our followers internationally. We are going to be talking about anti-Semitism because it seems that in a world where we're supposed to be more united, where there is more hate than ever before, and There are more anti-Semitic acts going on internationally, and it is a concern for everybody. So I have two very special guests, very familiar faces. They both have incredible books out, and one of them has a phone ringing. One sec. Not anymore. Not anymore. It's okay. We're all good. That's right. This is what happens when we take. So um, 
Anyway, we both have very special books. And as you know, in my opening segment, my pearls of wisdom, because I am Zisel Peril, my pearls of wisdom tonight is after you uh, view this show or listen to it, depending how you are uh, gaining access to it, go out and buy these two books. So the first person I want to introduce is the former ambassador, David Friedman. And I want to tell you something that very few people know about David that I happen to know because I was lucky enough. I could actually say I have uh, something over Trump on him is that I know him a lot longer. And that is David grew up in a house where it didn't matter whether or not you were a Democrat or a Republican, a Jew or a non-Jew. If you supported Israel and if you were somebody who fought anti-Semitism, you were a friend to the Freedmans. Am I right, David? You're right, Cindy. And uh, uh, we go back a long time. You know, you know, by the way, I, I don't know if you remember this, but, you know, I, uh, I got into a fight once uh, defending your brother uh, when, he, when he was like, uh, some people were picking on him. And uh, he's, 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 much, he's much bigger now, but he was very small then. And I, I, I defended him and I got beaten up because I, uh, I defended him. So anyway, just just a little piece of uh, personal history. I, know, I remember what year it was. So it's a very long time ago. <laughs> so anyway, first of all, thank you for joining us. And David's book is Sledgehammer, and he's going to talk a little bit about it. But I mean, David is the epitome. I mean, his father could pick up a phone, Rabbi Friedman, and talk to then Senator Patrick Moynihan or Governor Mario Cuomo, the same way that David could pick up a phone and talk to President Trump. And the discussion was key to fighting anti-Semitism, supporting Israel, being Zionist, and working together as Jews and non-Jews, understanding the importance of fighting this hate. So as I was saying, continue on. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about the book. And tell us a little bit why you wrote the book and why you are such a strong advocate for fighting anti-Semitism as a world leader for the Jewish community and non-Jews. Sure. First of all, I wanted to say that it's really an honor for me to be uh, appearing uh, with uh, Jason Greenblatt, who um, I don't get to see enough anymore. We used to be in contact, I think, daily for uh, for at least three years. And um, uh Jason uh, did incredible things for the Jewish people and for the United States. And um, uh, he's got a great book as well. And uh, so before I talk about mine, let me just say that uh, Jason wrote an extraordinary book as well. And uh, I'm honored to appear with you and him together on this podcast. But my book has been out for a while. uh, It's been out for about uh, six, seven months. Thank God we had really great success when it opened. It was... um, uh, at least reported to be the, the best-selling book on Israel uh, in its first week of uh, publication in about at least 10 years, and uh, very grateful for that. Um, look, it's, it's a personal story. Um, it's a story about how um, uh, somebody who has strong feelings and principles uh, uh, and under the right circumstances, working for the right president with the right team, can accomplish um, great things um, I, I hope everybody uh, listening uh, agrees that they're that they're great things, but great things for the U.S.-Israel relationship, whether it was Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, uh, the peace plan, or what ultimately led to the Abraham Accords. So uh, it's it's a personal story. Uh, it goes into sort of how 
um, how a guy who had no political background um, cared deeply about Israel but had no outlet to really uh, express or actualize those feelings was able to uh, uh, find himself on the world stage and, and make a difference. Uh, the, the, the love of Israel I have, as you pointed out earlier, comes from my family, my parents. I remember them vividly in June of 1967, literally weeping um, when uh, Jerusalem was reunited, when Rabbi Gorin blew the shofar at the Western Wall. And um, at the time, I was only nine years old, didn't fully appreciate what it was, but it was ingrained in me. And, you know, on the subject of anti-Semitism with people of my generation, uh, uh, and it's, it's true uh, in Jason's case, uh, more than in my case, but we have, you know, uh, in some, some cases, parents, uh, uh, that, that would be Jason's case, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but my case, aunts, uncles who, who uh, survived the Holocaust, some uh, didn't survive the Holocaust. I mean, um, going through that, that ugly period uh, and having relatives who went through it uh, leaves a lasting impression and a, a deep commitment to preserve the Jewish people. We're not, we're not a big people. You know, we're only, uh, even to this day, we have not restored our numbers from the 6 million we lost during the Holocaust. We're not, a, we're not, a, we're not big in numbers, but uh, we have a very important message for the world and, and we're committed deeply to preserving it and to surviving. And it's still, it's still a survival game, even today. Well, I am very fortunate to have a mother-in-law who is a living survivor of the Holocaust and one of her siblings is still alive. So I know firsthand living with a child of a Holocaust survivor, what fighting anti-Semitism means. And one of the biggest questions I'm asked all the time, do I believe we're going through all this anti-Semitism while there are Holocaust survivors still living? It, it's a question that I'm asked all the time. And it's a question I don't always have the answer for. Maybe our next guest has an answer for this. And Jason Greenblatt is also an attorney, just like David. Uh, and in 2017, he was appointed by President Trump as a special representative for negotiations internationally. And of course, he had a very important part in the Abraham Accords. And his brand new book is from Post Hill Press, In the Path of Abraham. And we are just so happy to have you join in the conversation because both of you are good friends and are very, uh, very important voices for fighting anti-Semitism. So Jason, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Cindy. And, and uh, David, it's also an honor for me to be here with you, someone I consider a good friend, but even more important, probably the best U.S. ambassador to Israel, someone who wasn't shy to stand up for Israel time and time again to fight for the U.S.-Israel relationship and not to take any, um, let's just say, negativity coming out of the U.S. government, which often it did, either for lack of understanding of the U.S.-Israel relationship or Israel itself. So he was a great fighter to be alongside with in the trenches. Well, you also are. And I know you also agree with us. It's not a party issue, a religious issue. I mean, I actually sat next to you at a dinner with at uh, the New World by Rabbi Shmuley Bateach. And we know he he is friends with both uh, people in both parties. So I know how strongly you believe in anti-Semitism, fighting it from both parties. It's a uh, nonpartisan issue that needs bipartisan support. Indeed. And maybe the best way I could frame the anti-Semitism from my eyes is when I was uh, probably 20, maybe 19, I went on my first trip to Europe 
And I was amazed at the vans, in some cases, you know, several officers and no vans protecting the synagogues of Europe. And I thought, you know, how could it be that so close to the Holocaust that European synagogues would need, prote- would need protection by policemen or military with, in some cases, machine guns? And I thought that would never happen in America. Yet today, you know, let's go back maybe 10 years or so where we needed to have volunteers who protect our synagogue, CSS, which does an amazing job. There may be other organizations as well. Now some of them actually need body armor. And of course, you have shootings in synagogues. So the world has changed. Our country has changed in so many terrible ways when it comes to this fight. Well, I had a recent article on Arut Sheva, Israel National News, about how uh, pe- uh, people are afraid to go to shul on the Upper West Side at, or put up a sukkah for fear of what's going on. And I know people. Sorry about that. <laughs> God, sorry. And people in the suburban areas are waking up to anti-Semitic flyers on their car windshields and in their mailboxes. So this is something that's hitting home everywhere. What are you, what are your thoughts on that? What can we do about it? Either one, go first. Go first, Jason. Okay, I'll go first. So look, I think people tend to politicize the issue. You know, so many people very, very wrongly blamed President Trump. That's just not true. I'm someone, and David could probably speak to this as well. I'm someone who's known him, worked for him for 23 years. I never saw an ounce of anti-Semitism. The focus is on the wrong issue. The focus needs to be on the haters, those that want to harm Jews. There's never been, uh, I I think, probably the two good examples just to show how President Trump is not anti-Semitic, besides my own experience with him, personal experience, where he not only tolerated me being a Jew, he encouraged it. He he was so proud of me me being an observant Jew. But if you look to his remarks in in, uh, Pittsburgh when, when the terrible event happened at the Tree of Life Synagogue, he said something along the lines of those who seek to destroy the Jews we will destroy them. And he meant it. And the other one is the cancellation, the pulling out of the Iran deal, where he is protecting the Jewish state of Israel. Of course, others are being protected by that as well. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the region itself is in tremendous danger because of the Iran deal. But one of the best things that he did in doing that was trying to protect the Jewish people of Israel. I'm going to name a third thing, because we were all at the Hanukkah party where he signed the executive order combating anti-Semitism. I haven't seen any executive orders in the Biden administration, but I'm going to go to David with the next question. And my God, I I blame because I know it firsthand. I have the longest running lawsuit against the New York City Department of Education, where I saw so much discrimination, so much going on in the Mm -hmm. curriculum, et cetera. I blame a lot of it on education and not just the college campuses, but from pre-K on that's been going on for two dozen years because now we see a generation in their 20s that doesn't even know what the Holocaust is. They think the Holocaust is an Anne Frank diary or they're getting handouts in classrooms that don't have Israel on the map, but just Palestine. What do you say, David? Well, look, I think um, the, the U.S., view, the, the, the U.S. citizenship view collectively towards Israel is mm-hmm. trending to a very dangerous place and a very negative place. Look, uh, um, you, you can't get tenure on an American university if you're pro-Israel. It's almost taken for granted that if you are, um, uh, you know, if, if you're an academic in any university, 
that you believe that as between Israel and the Palestinians, the, Israel has the, by far the weaker case to be there. That's, I don't know what we can do about that. I'll, I'll be honest with you. You know, there are lots of good ideas. A lot of people are trying very hard to change the hearts and minds. I, I, I think the first thing we got to do, because it's more, it's more pressing, is we got to stop the violence against Jews uh, on the streets. And that, to me, is just a law enforcement issue. You know, that, that, that's got nothing to do with ideology. It's not about changing the hearts and minds. The people who commit these acts, they don't have hearts and they don't have minds. You, you're never going to change their view. You have, to, you have to put them in jail. And, um, and so while, you know, there is, you know, at the top level, a, bar, a bipartisan condemnation of anti-Semitism, there is not a bipartisan approach to ending violent anti-Semitism. Of course, the only legitimate approach is to arrest people and keep them locked up. And, you know, you know, look, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not here to give a political speech, but the Democrats want to release people, you know, when you have no cash bail and people, you know, slug, um, you know, uh, orthodox looking Jews on the street, and then they're set free an hour later. Um, you, you are not combating anti-Semitism. I don't care what what you know platitudes you offer publicly in a speech you're not combating anti-semitism and so you know look i i think that the nypd should be should be full of uh, undercover cops dressed up in you know hasidic garb and you know as soon as somebody you know makes t- takes action they ought to be arrested and they should be prosecuted for hate crimes if if the state won't do it then the federal government ought to do it but they're not right now and that to yeah. me that to me is is the immediate issue. You know, we can talk for hours about how to, you know, how to change the 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 way people you know view Israel on college campuses. It's it's a long conversation, requires a lot of resources, but it doesn't require a lot of resources to lock up criminals. That we that we used to do very well. We did it under Giuliani. We did it under Bloomberg. You know, um, we did not do it under De Blasio, and we're not doing it now. And that's just in New York. And it's you know, as, as somebody who's got a very you know, religious looking kid who goes to work every day, you know, it's concerning to me. And um, uh, I'm sure Jason feels the same way. Yeah, I think it's a great idea there and a great focus. Well, I could tell you I, two episodes happened at Penn Station with young kids and they went to the cops who were there. And we are all here pro law enforcement. And mm-hmm. um, basically, the cops said there's nothing we can do as they were being attacked by the Palestinian um, sympathizers. So, I, you know, they, they're being told from somebody not to, you know, arrest these people, not to try to lock them up because nothing is happening. So it is in the hands of our government on a, lo- a local, on a state and a federal level. I totally agree. That's an initial action that should be taken. That's not. So many of our non-Jewish followers ask the question that you guys get all the time in, why are there so many Jews that are still democratic? And I tell them the numbers are changing. It's just that the media doesn't talk about it as much as they talk about uh, other minorities. And also, they seem to think that in the Jewish communities, all Orthodox Jews are Republican and all non-religious Jews are democratic. And that's simply not true either. How do you uh, discuss this with people? Whoever wants to take it could go first. Go ahead, Jason. Okay. So uh, first, I agree with your last statement. I mean, there are synagogues, Orthodox synagogues I can walk into. And as someone who's worked for President Trump for 23 years, including three at the White House, 
no matter what President Trump's accomplishments were, they're Orthodox Jews who, uh, you know, let's just say they're not so friendly to me. So they're not all Republican. They're certainly not all Trump supporters. Many of them do lean Democrat, do lean left. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges our community has, and this ties back a little bit to your other question, we have to learn to separate Jewish issues, whether it's Israel, um, anti-Semitism and the like, from politics. These should be completely bipartisan. You know, if you lean left or you want to, um, you know, you want to spend other taxpayers' money on all sorts of social programs, that's your business. I'm against that, but it's your business. But there's absolutely no reason we shouldn't be fully joining forces on Israel and on anti-Semitism and on other Jewish-related causes. Hey, look, you know, the, the Jewish community, at least to my feeling, is, look, like most communities, it's not monolithic. I mean, we tend to think why Jews should, I mean, there's no other group. I mean, I've gotten to know the uh, evangelical Christian community pretty well. I've gotten to know other communities well, African-American community. Nobody's monolithic. So I don't think, you know, I don't think it's, it's helpful to expect Jews to act in a certain way. Um, I wish they did, but I don't think it's likely. Um, you know, the, the Jewish, the, when, when the history of the Jewish people in America is written one day, it won't be, uh, it'll, it'll be a tale of two cities in a sense, you know, you know, look, we have, we've had 5 million Jews in America roughly for the last, the last 75 years, you know, it's about 5 million. We keep, we're stuck at 5 million. You know, we had 5 million in 1948. We have 5 million now, you know, we, uh, you know, there were 600,000 Jews in Israel in 1948. There's seven and a half million. Now the growth of the Jewish world is entirely in Israel, it's shrunk everywhere else in the world, and it's about it's about level in uh, in the United States. And you know, the trend line is that you know we'll become like Europe, you know, eventually, which is you know we'll have pockets of uh, committed Jews in places like you know, and you have in in London and in Antwerp and you know places like that in Europe. We'll have pockets, you know, in Brooklyn and the five towns in New Jersey, and you know, every month I congratulate him on his on his book, which is doing phenomenally. And, um, you know, I'm, I got my hands on a lot of different uh, enterprises, you know, the book is done, but still making uh, documentaries with uh, the Trinity Broadcast Network. And I'm uh, and Secretary Mnuchin and I are partners in a, uh, in a private equity firm that has an office in Tel Aviv that I that I run. And, um, and I have a foundation called the Friedman Center for Peace Through Strength, which uh, engages in, uh, we sponsor conferences and we produce a lot of content and media to help strengthen the U.S.-Israel relationship. So, you know, uh, when I got out of government for the first time in my life, you know, I was unemployed for the first time in 40 years and I kind of freaked out because I had nothing to do for a day and I may have overshot the runway. Now I have so many things to do uh, that I that I took upon myself because I was worried about having free time. And fortunately, I, I don't have much free time. And you forgot the most important job, uh, grandfather. You are the best grandfather to those little kids and everybody sees it on all the social media. Oh, they're they're just so adorable. Thank Jason, you. tell us a little bit about you. Sure. So I also speak to President Trump somewhat infrequently. I haven't spoken to him in a couple of months, but when I did speak to him over the past couple of years, it, even after he left the Oval Office, you know, he's energetic, excited, um, certainly fighting a lot of battles, but doing it uh, you know, courageously. Um, I ran into Mike Pence in Korea, of all places. We were both speaking at the same conference a couple of weeks ago. So that was a nice treat. And I agree with David. We had just a terrific lineup of Republican leaders. 
Uh, Nikki Haley is also one of them as well. And uh, it's going to be exciting to see the playing field over the next bunch of years. Uh, in terms of myself, and, you know, you, you kind of stole my line, but I, I love being a husband and a father again. Um, you know, living apart from your wife and kids for nearly three years and only seeing them on the weekends, which are generally very compressed because either I was running back to Washington or my wife and kids were running back to New Jersey was tough. So I'm enjoying that. And I spend most of my time connecting Israeli and American companies with countries and companies in the Arab world. You know, people misunderstand the Arab world in a big way. They continue to do so. Um, the cultures are different. The business cultures are different. So I build business ties and I'm uh, excited to see about the progress, even with non-Abraham Accords countries, how much uh, business could be done between Israel and its Arab neighbors and certainly America. So that's what I spend most of my time doing. I'm so glad both of you mentioned Mike Pence, because really Mike Pence is a solid supporter of the Jewish people in the state of Israel. He really had an incredible tenure as vice president. And I, I, you know, he is just an incredible leader in so many ways, uh, despite what ended up happening, on, you know, in January 6th. I mean, people really, if they understand long term policy, long term leadership, he is an incredible supporter of the American people and Jews around the world. So I'm glad you both mentioned him um, because he really was and is still somebody that the Republican Party should look to for guidance and leadership. No, I agree. He was a great colleague, great vice president, huge, huge supporter of Israel, uh, very instrumental in the recognition of Jerusalem. You know, that that um, recognition, of course, the credit fully goes to President Trump, but there were lots of people and countries fighting it. And Vice uh, Vice President Pence towed the line with many of them trying to push them back and, you know, didn't let them get into President Trump's ear in a way that would be harmful. Before we leave, first of all, I want to thank both of you for coming on. And it's in a very important time in all of our lives. We're being sealed for the next year. I hope you're both sealed in the book of life and good health and happiness and simplas in your families and peace around the world for Jews. And I want you each once again to share with our audience where they could buy the books and where they could reach out to you. So David, go first. Okay, well, um, uh, love people to uh, to read my book, buy my book. It's uh, Sledgehammer: How Breaking with the Past Made Peace, Brought Peace to the Middle East. It's on Amazon, uh, like all other books are, published by Harper Collins. And um, um, uh, anybody who would like to get a hold of me, um, uh, my my kind of uh, uh, open uh, uh, source email is ambassadorfriedman at gmail dot com. I'll confess, I don't get that email. It goes to my staff, but um, that's the best way to get a hold of me. And then it gets filtered through. But um, uh, love to hear from everyone and follow me on uh, Twitter. Uh, I think it's uh, it's at David M underscore Friedman, I believe. Uh, or uh, the Friedman Center for Peace Through Strength at Friedman Center, I believe, is the foundation's Twitter as well. Um, so that's about that's how people can get a hold of me. And read Jason's book, because it's a great book, too. They're both great books. And that's my pearls of wisdom for the well, audience this week and for the new week. Go ahead, Jason. Tell everybody about From Post Hill Press, who are very good friends to the show. Tell us about the book. Sure. It's called In the Path of Abraham. It's also available on Amazon, wherever you get your books. I wrote it primarily to shatter the myths about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the Israeli-Arab conflict. There are so many of those myths. 
and David and I fought to fight uh, to, to overcome so many of those as well as Jared Kushner. Um, you can reach me on my website, jasongreenblatt.com. Follow me on Twitter at GreenblattJD. Uh, there's contact information on the website. And by the way, if you're an Israel supporter, if you're at all interested in Israel, the Middle East, the U.S.-Israel relationship, do read both of our books. They come at it from some similar angles, but there's um, a lot of uh, things that both books share in so many different ways, not just what we did, but how you should really look at Israel, the U.S.-Israel relationship, and the conflict itself. I think both books are important. And both books I will be promoting through the Black and White Network, Conservative Television of America, Real Talk Radio 93.3 AM and FM, plus all the podcast outlets we are downloaded on and streaming, plus Roku TV and uh, Amazon Fire TV. So there is certainly a large amount of places to get the books and to reach out to these leaders, to thank them for their service to us as Americans, as Jews, as Zionists, and as people working in a coalition with a non-Jewish world to bring peace around the world. Everybody, thank you so much for joining the Jewess Patriot. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Cindy. Great to be with you. In the latest spy thriller from PenCraft first place award-winning novelist, Jeffrey S. Stevens, comes his best character yet. CIA operative Nick Reagan in The Handler. The Handler is the new heart-pounding, dizzying global conspiracy novel that follows the adventure of two CIA operatives from New York to Pakistan, Paris, Las Vegas, and ultimately, America's heartland as they race to prevent a series of terrorist attacks. Here's what's being said about The Handler. Think Jason Bourne for The New Millennium. Ryan Steck, Editor-in-Chief, The Real Book Spot. Pulsing with reality, The Handler takes you to the precipice with thrills and terror at every hairpin turn. Best-selling author, Chris Beakey. And a taut terrorism thriller that mesmerizes with a dizzying global conspiracy and believable stakes. BestThrillers.com Available now on Amazon.com and wherever you get your favorite books. Get your copy and put yourself right in the middle of the CIA's toughest mission yet. My award-winning novel, Jeffrey S. Stevens. Welcome back to the Jewess Patriot. Joining us now is somebody who's been with us since the very beginning when we were just on two little radio shows. And he has grown with us and the company has grown with us. And we are so excited to bring back our friend Gabe Geller of Royal Wines. And of course, it's that time of the year when the Jewish holidays come out. And of course, the Jewish and kosher communities are having so many meals and so many festivities and wine is an important part of all of it. And of course we have so many non-Jewish friends. I mean, all the fall celebrations that they'd start in October from festivals with apples and all kinds of cooking changes in their homes to of course, preparations for Thanksgiving. So we are so happy to have you here to talk about the latest trends in wines, because you don't have to be Jewish with Cindy or Gabe. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Cindy. How are you? Doing well, like everybody else. I've already started my uh, 
preparations for Rosh Hashanah holidays and going now through Simplest Torah, uh, even some Sukkot invitations. So, of course, what I like to do, I always recommend to people first, buy the non-perishables. And of course, what falls into place? My wines and liqueurs. And where else to turn than Royal Wines, who has hundreds of wines and liquors from around the world, award-winning, because the selections are huge. And you have price points from $10 to $100 to hundreds of dollars. So there's something there for everyone. Tell us what are the latest trends in uh, wines for this fall season. Okay. So there is actually a, a trend that's been going on now for, uh, for a bit. And that has uh, collab also with, you know, kosher wines and all that. Uh, and that's sparkling wine. And uh, something that's great about sparkling wine is that they go with everything. You, you're like hesitating. Oh, um, we're having a, we're having a great, uh, you know, like Thanksgiving is not that far away. Right. Uh, so we're having a great, uh, a, a great turkey with stuffings, or uh, we're having a roast, or we're having sushi, or we're having, I don't know, salad, whatever it is. If you don't know which wine to pair with all of that stuff, you don't have to think too much. Bubbly. Champagne. Champagne goes pretty much with everything. I, I, I am not a big fan of champagne with dessert, with sweet stuff in general. But otherwise, you can have a whole dinner at a restaurant uh, from the appetizer to the steak to whatever it is that you're having. The side dishes, a great bubbly, a great sparkling wine uh, from Champagne or from other places. That's great. So this is Drapier. Drapier is one of the best, um, the best Champagne houses uh, in France. So that's a real Champagne from Champagne in France. Uh, they have been making uh, they have been making kosher uh, wine now for over a decade. Uh, this is uh, this is their uh, uh, rosé de Seigne. It's a hundred percent Pinot Noir. Uh, it's a delicious, beautiful pink champagne. Uh, it's got those great aromas of strawberries and cherries and raspberries, uh, and it's a, a, a really excellent uh, champagne to look at, to smell, to taste, to drink. Uh, to enjoy with friends, with family, whether you're celebrating something or just you know want something that's delicious and that's going to really elevate uh, your meal, this is a great option. Drapier, okay. champagne, this is the Rosé de Seigne. So I'm going to give you a little secret. For all those people that like to do, quote unquote, the semi-homemade desserts, and let's say you buy the cake mixes, instead of water, I sneak in some of these uh, bubbly wines and this sounds perfect. I was thinking of making like a strawberry cake, cutting up the fresh strawberries with the, the pink cake mix mm-hmm. uh, for somebody. And this goes in so well. So it's not just for drinking, but it actually does enhance the cooking. Not to mention we eat so many dates and dried food and pomegranates. There are so many desserts that are fruit oriented that this goes into those recipes just as well. So the perfect wines are when you could drink and cook with them. Absolutely. And while you cook, you have a glass. (laughs) Absolutely. And of course, another glass, when you set the table, it's the best time to do a wine tasting because 
every hostess knows you have to taste the wines before you serve them. Because And also, you have to know your guest. And I always suggest to people, not just to have one red wine, but there are drier wines and, and more full-bodied. Mm-hmm. And we've learned this from you. Tell us about a nice full-bodied red wine. Okay, so uh, a nice, uh, a nice full-bodied red wine. I don't have one right here. Uh, however, uh, there is one that is just released right now, brand new, uh, that I'm super excited about. It's called Villa Mangiacane. It's an Italian wine. It's a super Tuscan. It's a blend of Merlot and Sangiovese. Uh, really delicious, savory, uh, savory notes to it, uh, earthy notes to it. Uh, it's really a fantastic wine to have, for example, it's full bodied, but it's got that elegance that old world wines, European wines uh, have. Uh, and uh, there is that great recipe uh, for uh, standing rib roast uh, with garlic uh, that, uh, that I make that gives a great crust to, uh, to the roast and fantastic uh, flavors. Uh, and yeah, you pair uh, the, this ribros with this uh, with this super Tuscan, this uh, uh, fantastic Italian one. It's called Villa Mangiacane Magnificus. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, it's a high-end wine. Uh, it's not cheap, but it's not terribly expensive either. We're talking about fifty to sixty dollars uh, for a bottle. Uh, and I think that's a perfect uh, a perfect bottle to have on your holiday table. Uh, it's not a wine that you're going to have uh, every night of the week, but for such a special occasion, uh, whether it's for Rosh Hashanah, whether it's for any other holiday or any other celebration uh, with family, for example, uh, that's really a fantastic wine to consider. It's a 2017. Uh, it's already five years old. So it's got some age to it. Uh, it's very approachable already and really, uh, really a wine that I highly recommend. So I had to um, discuss with you a very big trend for this fall. Unfortunately, it's not a great, it's a great trend for the people like you selling wine Mm -hmm. because of the high cost of going out to dinner and people going out to less. I notice many of my followers uh, discuss this with me in in, uh, emails and also many of my friends as we socialize have decided we drink in more our liquor. We go more to the stores and purchase. I'm sure that uh, you are finding that as well in your sales and stuff. So what are some tricks for the smart consumer, especially at this time of year when Jews have to consume so much wine and everybody else wants to consume so much wine? What are some of the suggestions you make to um, wine buyers? Okay, so... FYI, this is uh, for the kosher wine market. This is one of the uh, hottest uh, times of the year. Uh, it's like uh, before Passover. Uh, those are the times when uh, you find the best sales, the best deals. Mm-hmm. So I even uh, would uh, recommend to my uh, to our uh, uh, followers here who are not necessarily Jewish, who do not necessarily need kosher wine. Um, that uh, if you go to a store that has a broad kosher wine selection, but not exclusively kosher wines in the store, uh, they will usually have big sales uh, at this time of the year on everything. Uh, so uh, go to your, uh, to your favorite uh, retailer uh, right now and, uh, and you know, stock up. up. Exactly. Also, I will tell you, 
so many of my listeners who aren't Jewish, who aren't in the big Jewish communities from all 50 states and around the world, write to me. They've had the, you know, um, a kosher wine and they love it and they want to use it. They don't care. They like the quality. They like the taste. They like the price range. So this is for everybody. But buy in, and I totally agree with you, buy in bulk. The next question before we talk about another wine is, uh, many people do have wine bars, whiskey bars at this time. What do you recommend for a good wine bar? Because a lot of people like to serve more than one wine as a cocktail before dinner or they're hanging out, you know, serving hors d'oeuvres or a charcuterie board. So what do I recommend for? A nice wine. Like if you, like if we had a bar, let's say a cheese bar, you recommend three cheeses or four yeah. cheeses. What would be three or four wines you recommend for a nice budget-friendly uh, wine bar? Okay. So I've got here two wines uh, that, you know, would, uh, would work for, uh, for, you know, a diversity of palettes. Uh, so this one is the Caramel Private Collection Moscato. It's a blue bottle that reminds you of something. <laughs> I know. Why are all the Moscatos blue bottles for the most part? <laughs> well, not all of them. A lot of them. It can, uh, but it's not, it, it's not that much. So that's the one I always highly recommend. Castel Grandin, the current vintage is the 2020. Uh, it's great already, but you know, if you can, if you have the possibility to put it away uh, for a few years, uh, I highly recommend it because that's a wine, really, that's, uh, uh, that rewards patience. And we should tell many of our listeners all over the country that Gabe actually travels on behalf of Royal Wines. And if any store by you wants to do a wine tasting, Gabe and I would come out together if you need and want, because it is really uh, so popular now. Uh, people relax to it, and a glass of wine is so quote-unquote, heart healthy, and it's the perfect time as the seasons change. Any last words you want to share with our audience before we have to close? Oh, just would like to uh, actually uh, uh, dabble down on what you just said. Uh, I, uh, I travel uh, very often to do uh, those uh, wine tastings, wine seminars, you know, with, uh, uh, with like-minded people, people who like to learn more about wine, who really appreciate wine. Uh, not just you know with stores, but also with private events. Uh, I've done one uh, in uh, in Baltimore a couple of weeks ago, in Miami the week before, uh, and it goes on and on. Uh, and it's always great to uh, get together with uh, with people who appreciate that. And uh, I bring a, a very special selection every time. So always, uh, if you're interested, wherever you are in the United States of America. Uh, I can uh, I can accommodate it and we can find the time and I'm very happy always to share some uh, some great wines and uh, some knowledge uh, whenever I can. And of course, we you can always reach out to Gabe through uh, Royal Wine uh, and through uh, his social media and Royal Wine social media. And of course, you're going to uh, hear a lot from Gabe the next few months. He's going to give us recommendations weekly. And of course, as we get to the big kosher events, including the uh, kosher food and wine ex- experience and, and the kosher, all the involvement of major kosher events, 
Gabe will be back with us. Thank you for joining once again, the Jewess Patriot. And Shana Tova, for all our non-Jewish friends, it means a happy and a healthy new year. Shana Tova to all. Thank you so much, Cindy, and see you next time. The folks at Royal Wine Corp, the largest manufacturer, importer, and exporter of kosher wine, offers wines from all over the world in every price point. Founded in 1848, Royal Wine Corp's mission is to be the premier manufacturer, importer, and distributor of specialty wines, spirits, and liqueurs from around the world. The commitment to perfection and family tradition spans over eight generations and has experienced growth since its beginning. Royal's portfolio of domestic and international wines ranges from traditional wine-producing regions of France, Italy, and Spain to up-and-coming ones like Israel, New Zealand, and Argentina. Additionally, Royal Wine Corp Spirit and Liqueur Portfolio offers some of the most sought-after scotches, bourbons, tequilas, and vodkas, as well as hard-to-find specialty items such as flavored brandies and liqueurs. To find out more, visit the Royal Wine website and find out where you can pick up all your wine needs or order online with discounts on many favorites. As always, in my closing, we will remember a child who perished in the Holocaust, and I can't think of a more appropriate ending to a show that highlighted so much about Jewish hate. And if we are not careful, it will happen again. Today, we're going to talk about Jan Akustin, who was born in Merkin, Lithuania, in an unknown date in 1939. He was a son of a young Jewish couple who had roots there for generations. In June 1941, the Nazis invaded Lithuania and many people were first celebrating the incoming Germans as they saw it as liberation from the Soviet regime in Lithuania. However, it soon became evident that the Nazis were even worse than the Soviets. On September 10th, 1941, 854 Jews, including Jan and his parents, were taken from their homes and gathered in the Jewish cemetery. All of them were led to a pit and shot in a, gra- in a grave near the cemetery. Jan was not even two years old. The Jewish cemetery fell into ruin and the victims of the other forgotten massacre were left where they were. To this day, they remain in the grove under an eternal blanket of earth. This massacre is not well known, even to the residents of Merkin. May the blessing of Jan and all those that perished on that day and the six million Jews who suffered during the Holocaust May, be a mes- may their memory be a blessing. And for all of you, I would close that may you have a happy and healthy new year. And again, I want to thank all of you, Jewish, pa- Jewish patriots, Jewish patriots, and non-Jewish patriots who believe in Judeo-Christian values. Our friends, the Christian Zionists, thank you so much for joining the show. See you next week. Thanks for watching The Jewish Patriot Show with Talk Radio's premier Jewish activist, Cindy Gross. Be sure to download Cindy's next program as well as previous ones available internationally on iHeartRadio, Spotify, and in Israel on Jewish Podcasts.
See you next time on the Jewish Patriot Show.